You are listening to Inside Biotech, an exciting podcast from Biotech Connection Los Angeles, which focuses on the science behind Southern California's most innovative new biotech companies. For those listeners who are new to the podcast, BCLA is an organization dedicated to inspire, educate, and connect emerging scientists and entrepreneurs to grow and diversify biotech in LA. I'm your host, Dr. Yuande Pierce, and I'm so excited to welcome you back to our fourth and final episode of our current series, The A in STEAM, Art and Design in Biotech. We are so excited to continue our deep dive into the interdisciplinary ways in which the world of science and biotech meets the world of art and design. If you want to stay informed about current progress and developments in the biotech industry, then you've definitely come to the right place and I hope that you'll subscribe and keep coming back each month. I'll be talking with different scientists, entrepreneurs and investors about the cutting edge science that goes on inside their companies, touching on a range of themes like art and design from across Southern California's biotech industry. The image of the COVID-19 virus with its spikes around a tiny sphere has now become tattooed on the brain of every person who opens the news, walks down the street to the grocery store, or simply opens social media. This image, while a testament to high-level scientific imaging techniques, was also carefully crafted to be accessible and comprehensible to the public. The person who did so was none other than a scientific illustrator, an artist who is deep in the scientific world. Our guest this month is one such scientific illustrator that makes these images a possibility. To learn more about this niche profession, we were lucky enough to sit down virtually with Carolina Driscoll, a scientific illustrator at USC. That interview, up next. Carolina O'Driscoll is a professional artist with advanced education in both the life sciences and visual communication. She collaborates with scientists, physicians, and other specialists to transform complex information into visual images that communicate to broad audiences. Her work has been utilized to support medical research, education, clinical care, public relations, and marketing objectives. Good morning, Caroline. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you on Inside Biotech. This is the last episode in our season, the A in STEAM. So we're really excited to speak to someone who so perfectly straddles both worlds. Well, thank you. That's quite a compliment. I hope I do perfectly straddle. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not 100% sure of that. But uh, yeah, thank you. We usually start these conversations with an icebreaker. Our icebreaker for you is to ask you what your has been one of your biggest influences. So it could be like a famous artist or a graphic designer or maybe even a scientist. Sure. Well, for most medical illustrators, I think they would go towards Leonardo da Vinci and some of those very early illustrators who did such a fantastic job of having no references, had, you know, just sort of human bodies in dissection that potentially they could use for various types of illustration. And I know when I was in graduate school, we were copying drawings from early illustrators like Max Bradle and some of these other people who had really started the entire field of medical illustration and tried to do the lines the same way and tried to, and it's incredibly difficult. So hats off to the people from those, you know. I mean, I completely agree. Right? I mean, it's truly, truly difficult to do and really kind of mind-blowing when you think about how much they were able to, you know, I, I remember hearing somebody talk about the David in Florence 
and talking about how Michelangelo looked at what looked at it when he was finished and said, why don't you speak? And I thought that's, that makes sense. I mean, that they were so good and so accurate with nothing like we have today. And so it, it's truly impressive to me when I think about the, the things that they were able to do with what little they had to work with and that it still survives today. If you go to, I'm in LA, so of course, if you go to any of the art museums here, you can see a lot of various bits and pieces of you know great works. But if you go to the Huntington Library, they have Visalius illustrations and books of different, um, or of those early artists from the 16th century, 17th century. And you can see that it, it's just as relevant and beautiful as anything we could make now. So truly impressive stuff. I couldn't agree more. And that's such a great example. And I think the thing that I'll uplift is just the recognition that they didn't have the tools that we have today. Like what you can do on an iPad with creating images or with, you know, all of the technology that we have today. It really is so impressive. That's a great answer. Thank you, Caroline. So this conversation is really just about, as I mentioned in the introduction, the A in STEAM and sort of focusing on that intersection of art and science. And you have a very impressive background. You're a senior graphic and product designer, medical illustrator, and animator. And I would say you seem to have one of those unconventional dream careers that I definitely didn't come across when I would go to careers advisors at school. So you have a bachelor's in sociology, and you also hold a master's in biomedical visualization. So I'm sure that helped. But what would be really interesting to get into is actually how you got from there to where you are now, which is at the laboratory of neuro imaging at USC and the work that you do there. Right. So long and winding road, really. And for me, like you said, you know, I went to career advisors. I talked to people. I took various, uh, you know, interest tests. And what happened for me was I took what's called an aptitude test, which is different from an interest test. And it's very interesting, or at least for me, it was very interesting to see just how my aptitudes played out. And what an aptitude test tests are things like that they, they would give me a, um, a group of tiny little rods, of metal rods, and a board with a bunch of holes in it, and a pair of tweezers. And they'd start a stopwatch and say, you know, go. And you, as quickly as you can, as accurately as you can, put three of the little rods into each of the little holes. And what they're, they don't tell you what they're testing, but what you find out later is what they're testing is speed or accuracy. Do you care more? about being quick or being accurate. And if you care more about accuracy, that's an aptitude that they might steer into a particular field. If you care more about speed, they're never gonna recommend that you be a brain surgeon because speed is your enemy if you're, right? So certain things, right? So a lot of things came out of those tests for me. And what was interesting is how weird some of those things were. Developing fish farms in underdeveloped countries was one of the things they recommended. So if you have all the aptitudes for medical illustration, you may also be very good at fish farm development. I do, so weirdly enough. <laughs> so, But there was a whole array of things that came up in there. And one of the things that was on the list was medical illustration. I'd never heard of it. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know that there were schools that actually had programs for it, I was completely oblivious. And I did those tests when I was in my 20s. So I, I had drawn as a child, 
but like most people gave it up around seven years old. And that's pretty typical for people. They give it up mm-hmm. around the age when they start judging their work. And seven is around the age that you start understanding rules. And that's why you learn, you know, all these, you go into game stores for kids and you see games that are for six, ages six and up, ages seven and up. There's a reason for that because you start understanding rules, then your brain is developing the ability to judge. And you start looking at your pictures then and you start judging them and you realize, well, these aren't that great. No matter what my parents have been telling me and how many of them are on the refrigerator, they're not good, right? <laughs> I did that. I did what most people do. I looked at those drawings and said, eh, I can't draw. So I never really drew. Well, I, there were a lot of things on that list. and There were you know things that came up from those aptitude tests that I was interested in pursuing. And some of the social sciences were there and I did a, you know, got my undergraduate in social science and music and different things. But I always thought in sort of the back of my mind, maybe I should try drawing just for fun because I clearly have some kind of aptitude for it. And I love medical stuff and all that. So when I was in my early forties, I decided to go to Santa Monica College and take two courses. I decided to take an anatomy class and a drawing class, a figure drawing class. So in that one semester, I was working and just doing this at night. In that one semester, I was doing these two classes and I discovered that when I was trying to draw, that it would get frustrating. Uh, When I was trying to do the assignments, I would get frustrated with it. So I would set it aside and I'd pull out my anatomy textbook and start studying and I'd calm right down. I'd relax, I could focus, I could think. And when I started getting too overloaded with the work in anatomy, I would put it aside, go back to my easel and start trying to do my drawing assignment again. And I'd suddenly relax all over again. And I realized there's a connection for me in that process. There's a connection between drawing and a connection between studying in medicine and and art and science that was healthy for me, that was good for me to keep switching it up. And over time, I also read a whole bunch of things about just various studies because I'm weird like that. So I would find out that, (laughs) for example, there was a study where they looked at how people remember things. They had people on the telephone. In this memory study, they had people listening to conversations and having these conversations. And half of the group, they had doodling. They had filling in circles and doing various scratches and making pencil drawings and things like that while they were talking. And the other group did nothing. They just had the conversations. And afterwards, they tested all the people and found out that the people who were drawing, who were doodling during the phone call, remembered all the conversations better than the people who didn't. It's fascinating, right? So for me, that was another sign that there's something about the way my brain is wired, clearly for many people, the way the brain is wired, that there's something tactile with memory and understanding. And I found that to be very true when I finally decided, you know what, I like this. This is more fun to me. I'm more interested in drawing and learning about the body than I am in doing my regular day job. And I'd like to do this. So I decided to go to graduate school. And I spent a couple of years taking all the classes and doing the various graphic design things that were offered locally to me and then applied and got into grad school and went to grad school in Chicago, where that's where I was really introduced to the full field of medical illustration and got my master of science degree as a biomedical visualization communicator. So that's the short story, even though that was kind of long. (laughs) 
No, it's fascinating to to hear sort of how you how you followed what felt right for you. And some people describe it as flow, but I just imagine in the work that you were beginning to learn that you really enjoyed doing, that there would be that element of flow and it just naturally feeling like it makes sense. And that study that you told us about is really interesting that you're, the people who had been doodling while they were having these conversations are able to remember them better because you always get told off at school for, <laughs> for doodling. <laughs> so it's actually, uh, yeah, it's interesting from that perspective. Yes. And there's a number of really, truly interesting studies that I feel like are sort of counterintuitive in some ways. And one of them, another one of them that I, that I learned about in graduate school that I found super useful to me and that actually helped me in getting my final projects finished for my thesis for graduation. There have been studies about people going into sciences, going into STEM, and in the beginning, everybody needs those visual aid helps. You know, they, they need, if you're learning about water, you need to see the, the one large H molecule and the two small O's attached to it and understand that that's a water molecule. And if you do not have the ability to visualize that in your head, you start to struggle later on. And interestingly, a lot of, that's where a lot of people drop out. But the people who can do that and can continue well down the line into science doing that usually get very far. And eventually, you don't need to see it anymore. You don't need to actually have a, something in front of you that shows you those H2O molecules. You just know what they look like. And so you you understand and you can do things at a very high level. But there comes a point when you're at the expert level, when you've never seen it before, you can't imagine it because you're only able to imagine what you've seen so far, that in order to really grasp and develop something new, you have to have a way to visualize it beyond just what you can imagine in your head. Right. And so most of the things that come out of medical illustration are in collaboration with scientists getting them to that next step. And that's a lot of times where scientific discovery comes from. People making up a way to see it outside of their head because you can't get to the next step without it. There's a whole field of research on it that I find really fascinating. I think a lot of people don't understand the need for the visualization. They think, well, I got it. I know it. I don't need a visualization. But you do at every level to get it started, to progress. Once you're an expert, to get to the next innovation. So I think a lot of times art is downplayed or, you know, doodling, visualizations of all kinds are downplayed. You know, we defund art all across the, the nation and in many places in the world. And yet, if we really want to get to, you know, the next innovation, we have to have it. Our brains just need it. It's so integral to the process, actually, the way that you've described that. It does make complete sense. And when you're coming up with novel ideas and hypotheses, you do have to visualize, you do have to be able to imagine something that doesn't yet exist in order to drive discovery forward. And I completely agree that element of art in that process and how integral it is, is definitely downplayed. And I mean, it's not the same of a figure in a, in a paper isn't necessarily, it's, it's a graph. Or, or, I mean, you can have um, informatics, but they're so essential. And I definitely myself can I mean, what you've said resonates with me because I really need to be able to visualize to understand. Through this conversation, which actually leads me to the next question, is that, I mean, science communication is, seems to be at the heart of a lot of the work that you do. Although it is a big field, I feel like it, you know, it does fall into that. 
And I mean, science does have its own language, which is kind of intangible, I'd say, even for scientists themselves. And so what you're saying about that visualization, again, really resonates. So I'm just wondering, you talked about collaborating with scientists to get them that there, to help get them to that point. How do you yourself actually translate this really complex language into imagery that everyone can understand? Like, How does the process start for you? Does it start with a paper or with raw data? And then how does, yeah, where do you go from there? So sometimes people want to draw you a picture. And so a lot of times when I'm working with people, they will give me a very rough schematic. And like I said, you know, we all have all these judgments about our work. So the first thing they do is apologize and tell me, we know this isn't right. We know this looks terrible. This is awful. But here. And so they'll give me something. And at least that's a beginning, right? That's a starting point. And I'll start with that. If there's absolutely nothing, then it's a lot of conversations and a lot of my own research to try to dig into maybe they can't draw, but maybe someone else in the same field has drawn something terrible that I can take a look at, right? <laughs> Which is great. I mean, I, I don't care if it's bad. Like that's, that's not their job to make it look good. That's my job to make it look good. So for me, you know, a lot of times having the conversation can often begin with them drawing something. And for me, trying to understand what they're trying to get out in terms of the message that they're trying to get out, because it's not always specific to the, not everything has to, as we know, when we look at any art, right? Not everything has to look perfectly anatomically correct for it to give the message that the artist is trying to convey. What it really needs to do is to tell the story, whatever that story is. As all stories do, you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end is what leaves you, that stands in your memory the most, right? The, so when you look at any paragraph, the last sentence is the most important, the first sentence is the next most important, and then the middle. So what you want is for whatever the takeaway is to be what they're trying to get out. And understanding the science does come first. So a lot of times I'll have to read through some very long papers and try to make sure that I get all my questions answered about that and have many conversations about what's the final takeaway? What is it that they want to be able to truly have the person, the last thing they think about and the thing that they go home and tell their, hey, I saw this cool thing, you know, their friends about, what is that? And that's what you want to make sure that the picture does more than anything else or the visual does more than anything else. And I, I have been talking about 2D things, but you know, now in 3D and augmented reality, there's many ways to get that takeaway. So you know, a video may start one way and end a very different way. And that's a good thing sometimes. That's exactly what you want. You want that story told that way. We also have somebody in our lab who's working on some augmented reality that's fascinating. What you can do with that is take your phone, put it onto a figure in a paper, and it gives you a manipulative, you know, a, a thing that you can manipulate on your phone, an actual pop-up, you know, visualization of a skull that you can turn around, of blood vessels that you can manipulate. So you're seeing it in multiple dimensions that allows you to understand it in ways that you can't if you are just looking at the figure. You know, again, it's a takeaway, but really it's the story. 
it's the story you want to tell. How compelling that story is and sort of what you add by having that visual element. And as you're talking about the ability to see things in 3D, I'm a neuroscientist. And so I've been studying the brain for a really long time, just in 2D. And only fairly recently, actually, did I discover that actually you can look at a 3D model online some sometimes. And it completely shifts my perspective for these structures in the brain that I've been studying for ages but actually hadn't placed physically in context of the brain. So I definitely agree it's such a powerful tool and it's, it is about telling a compelling story, especially for non-scientists and also for scientists who want to be inspired. I think there's something really powerful about that. Yes, I, I think I will connect you with um, some of the things that our lab has been doing um, where you can try it out, try out the augmented reality yourself because it's it's a new way that I think, I think it's the future of being able to present scientific papers, frankly, um, and posters. That's fascinating, Caroline. I can't wait to delve into the rest of our conversation. We'll be right back after this quick word from our sponsors. Siddhartha Mukherjee, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author and cancer researcher, tells us, Science begins with counting. To understand a phenomenon, a scientist must first describe it. To describe it objectively, he must first measure it. As fellow scientists, we all agree that measurements are the foundation on which everything else is built. And yet, as we start to apply machine learning techniques to more areas of research, there is an appalling lack of measurements in the machine learning field. Brainome AI changes all of this with our data compiler the first measurements-based tool for bioinformatics research. If you want to incorporate measurements into your computational work, be it biology, chemistry, genomics, or physics, then visit www.brainome.ai for a free demo version of the software. So you've done a lot of work for NASA, which is impressive. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project? So the NASA project came about because in my graduate work, I was given a book by one of my advisors called Space Physiology. And it was a really interesting book by a researcher at Dartmouth who also happened to be an astronaut. He went up as a project specialist on a mission. So he spent two weeks in the International Space Station and wrote about all of the things that happen to your body in spaceflight. It was absolutely fascinating. I loved it. And so I sent him a note and just said, really loved the book. I'd love to be on your mailing list for anything in the future. And he wrote me back and said, you know, sure, thanks. And I think he had no expectation that I was really that interested. But I wrote and just asked him a couple of questions. So I think he just sort of realized, oh, this is somebody who's actually interested in this stuff. And so we started talking, right? As it turned out, he was working on a project to understand the changes that happen in the astronaut's eyes in spaceflight. And what happens, we don't know how exactly happens, but the astronauts go to the ISS, the International Space Station, for six months at a time. And while they're there, sometimes weeks into the mission, they start having difficulty with their vision. There was a paper that came out in 2011, I believe, a huge paper 
about exactly what was going on with these astronauts and that they had come, you know, they'd had scans before, the MR scans before they left and then had them again when they got back. And when they got back, you could see an actual change in the shape of their, the globe of the eye. We know that there are all of these contributing factors, right? So when you go into space, all of the fluid that's normally, you know, brought down to your feet by gravity go up into everywhere. They go all over and up into your head in ways that they normally wouldn't, right? So normally everything drains down, but in space that doesn't happen. So you've got more fluid there. Well, it was originally thought that it was intracranial pressure, that there was more fluid. But in reality, there's many factors. There's the tissue that normally sits on your eye, the blood that normally sits, so that weight on top, that's gone. The muscles that normally you would see down the street, you never use on the ISS. You're looking a few feet away at the wall, or you look out the window to infinity. So those intermedial spaces aren't used. So all of these things came in that were just fascinating to me. And one thing that I did was create an interactive that allowed researchers to play with those various dimensions. So I created a 3D model and this interactive through Unity that allowed you to use sliders and play around with what was happening potentially in the eye, the things that we know are changes in spaceflight and as a result of that, I ended up getting some other work from NASA. So it's been a very, it was an interesting journey, but it all started in grad school because of this very interesting problem. And there's tons of stuff like that. But what it does too, is it allows us to understand what's happening for people on earth. So if people on earth have a problem with high intracranial pressure, what do you do? What did we do for the astronauts, right? Because we know that that exists. So how do we solve these problems on earth? So everything that's happening on the space station all the experiments they run, for example, they found out that people with higher vitamin D weren't having as much vision problems as the people who had the lower vitamin D. And because that happened on the space station, they're doing things to treat people with eye issues here on Earth with vitamin D. So we think it's very disconnected most times, but many times it's important to know that a lot of the things that have come out of the space program, dialysis, kidney dialysis, and um, the artificial heart and all those things all came out of the space program. They're all for science here on Earth. But you can't get to those things unless you can solve the issues that are happening in space. And so those are the kind of visualizations that NASA uses in order to help them understand what's happening with their astronauts. That is so cool and so interesting. I think people are always talking about why we're we going to space and what is really the point of space travel. And I think that illustrates so perfectly, actually, how those findings based on those questions are so applicable down here on earth i guess it's creating a very specific exaggerated condition that you don't find in a lab or that's hard to recapitulate in a lab i love that story that's amazing yeah it is interesting right i mean all the things that happen with your bones all the things that happen with your muscles there's a lot there's a lot that they've discovered in space that help us here and it's it's pretty fascinating the whole thing is really kind of crazy too like what happens to your body? It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> what an opportunity to be able to work with NASA. I mean, I will assume it's probably been one of the highlights of your career, but I'm not going to. And I'm also going to ask you a little bit about any other projects that you feel that you've been especially excited about. I feel like that is hard to top just because it's such an interesting application and way to collaborate with people at NASA. It's interesting because it's so different, because it's so unique. I feel like the things that I'm doing in working with neuroscientists are equally fascinating 
they're less unique, right? They're less different than other researchers. Yeah. Many people are working on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and those things, yeah. but I think they're, they're as, as interesting in many respects. I mean, so just, you know, the things that have cropped up lately, we're doing, uh, I just did finished an illustration recently on um, the uh, auditory pathways and looking at ways in which the brain processes sound. And some of those things are absolutely fascinating from a neuroscientist standpoint. But of course, you know, a lot of people do sound things. So it, in a way, it's not unique, but it's very interesting. It's really very interesting. That is actually a really cool area of research. So the work that you would do specifically is in illustrating that was that project to like illustrate the, the pathways, the canal, and then the auditory cortex in the brain, or was it something a bit more 3D? It was actually 2D for this particular project. There was a, I believe there will eventually be a, a more of a 3D component. We have definitely done that in the past. I work with a team one of whom does mainly animation, the other one who's lately been doing mostly augmented reality. And we sort of split things up. So I've been doing the 2D part of this. My colleague has been doing the 3D images through it. And it's quite complicated to get an entire 3D image of the auditory pathways through, you know, to be able to put it into some kind of an animation because of the billions of, you know, pathways in the brain. It's just so complicated and these scans are so large that, you know, taking everything away to enable you to show the pathway in 3D takes some time. So I think there will be a 3D component. It's just not there yet. But it's it's interesting to look at exactly what's going on for our various systems. So, you know, one of the things we know for sure is that the one thing that we can all say is, you know, the one thing that can help you prevent Alzheimer's is exercise. And we know that exercise promotes neurogenesis in the hippocampus that then goes to the, you know, executive function, the prefrontal cortex, right? So showing that in 2D is pretty quick and straightforward. Showing that in 3D takes a bit of time. <laughs> so I know it's happening. So it takes a bit of time. It's, it's one of those things that we're constantly working on and updating our latest animations and all of that. But yeah. It's fascinating. It's very interesting. Just going back to the ear again, it is actually very cool. Thinking about the the hair, the very tiny hairs in the ears and the mechanism for sound and how they have this arrangement where different areas along the canal pick up different frequencies. I'm just picturing what that would look like as a an animation or a 3D kind of model with sound as well. I think it would be super interesting to see that so maybe in the future at some point i think yes and uh, you know how do you show a sound wave that's a complicated and very fun problem for people like me <laughs> i love doing that sort of thing <laughs> awesome um so i mean i was having a look at your website and looking at your work and you do create a lot there are infographics posters logos stationary brochures the list goes on there's so much that i think that you cover with your work and it's really important for grants and proposals, presentations, and the list goes on. So I'm wondering what format you enjoy in particular. Is there one that you specifically tend to go to, or does it just depend on what the project is? It, it really depends on the project. And I like some of the things that are a little quicker. So Illustrator is quite fast. Maya is, it takes a lot of time. So I think for me, sometimes I like the quick gratification of just doing a 2D illustration. <laughs> it's quick, it's done. <laughs> right? 
Whereas 3D, yeah, you can work on an augmented reality project for a year. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes that's great because you can really dive in and it's really complex. But other times it's really nice to just one and done, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I guess it's going back to what we were talking about at the beginning and the flow and then just, you know, drawing something. I imagine that that is kind of where this all started. But out of curiosity, I mean, things are developing all the time. There are lots of different technologies. But is there an area that you, like a skill in particular or a format that you want to conquer in the future? something that maybe you don't get to work a lot with that you'd be really interested in. I know you spoke a little bit about augmented reality already. I do think augmented reality and and 3D animation, 3D imaging are probably going to be the new ways that illustrators are, you know, their work is done. Because as I mentioned, I think when you have a, a poster or a scientific paper or you, you know, send off your submission for something, if the person who gets whatever you've you know, brought up on the screen, if they can click on it and it becomes a 3D model that they can turn around, that's, that's a, that's a game changer because you understand it, right? You, you, you have to turn off your ideas that you already had and really look at what you're seeing in front of you. Because when you, when you have a slice of, you know, brain scan and just have like one of those, one of those images you have to mentally extrapolate what everything else looks like. With a 3D model and a 3D visualization, if you saw you know, that one image, clicked on it and got a whole brain that you could turn around, I mean, with li certain limitations, right? What I would love ultimately in my work, if I could ever pull this off, would be everybody in school, they come into their class, they stand around this table and the instructor brings up a 3D image in front of everybody that hovers over the table and everybody can turn it around, look at different elements. You could do an entire gross anatomy lab dissection of a body all in augmented reality, right? That would be amazing. That's the kind of thing I think would teach people enormous, um, you'd learn an enormous amount with very little misunderstanding. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more as I mean, myself, I do a lot of work with anatomical brain atlases and we work with brain tissues. So in a way, we have got access to the brain in, you know, it's pretty informative being able to look at a tissue, being able to look at an atlas or the analysis I do. But there is nothing like actually being able to interact with a 3D model tangibly. And it's surprising that it's something that's quite new. Like I said, I come across that sometimes. If you randomly go on a, um, I think, Creative Commons, sometimes there is like an interactive 3D model. But I wish it was just so much more widely accessible because I agree with you. It would be a complete game changer. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, neuroimaging is one of my favorite areas of neuroscience. So before we end our conversation, what would be really fun to get into? You've already blown my mind by talking about like, that fact at the beginning about how uh, we start judging our work at age seven. And also talking about NASA and the auditory canal. Through your work with neuroimaging, what would you say is the most mind-blowing finding that you've had to create a visual for? And how did you go about that? I would say probably there was a artificial intelligence project that came up recently that I would say is super interesting and kind of mind-blowing, where they can now use AI to figure out the age of your brain. And it's pretty good. It comes within a year or two of your, you know, age and 
it's just straight up from, you know, scans and AI. And it's complicated because there are so many facets of AI that I don't really understand. So I've, I've had to dig into it and it's kind of mind blowing, really. It's, it's a way of allowing, it's almost like, you know, master chess kind of thing. The, the sort of pathways you can go down that your brain can't, or at least my brain, can't really grasp all of those. The artificial intelligence can and can add it into these models. It's pretty interesting. So for me, it was a lot of work with the scientists involved because it was so new to me. I just had no idea how to go about it. But based on, you know, they gave me some terrible drawings and I made some terrible drawings back and <laughs> we went back and forth a lot to try to kind of land on what's the story? What is the real story here? And the story ultimately is that this technology allows us to understand things that just our one brain can't. It's like stringing a whole bunch of you know brains together that have this processing power to be able to go down the what ifs of all of these various elements that my brain simply can't grasp. I can't hold all those one what ifs in my brain all at the same time. It's I start losing the thread. How many numbers can we remember at a time, right? Something like nine, 10. I don't remember what the thing is, but right. We can't keep it all. No. But the artificial intelligence can and, and do these calculations. So I find that really, really interesting and really difficult because there comes a point, right, when our movies and these other things that we've, that we've, you know, sort of fantasized about and that we've made TV shows about and all of that, cyborgs are here, right? We have people who have brain implants. We have people who have you know, all of these artificial limbs and different things. We're working on, you know, fixing spines. And, and what are the ethics there? What are, how are we going to manage that? How are we going to make sure that we are doing right by all of the people that allow us the access to their medical information? Absolutely. What is that going to look like in the future with artificial intelligence? And it's been very complicated, very interesting, but I also think it's, you know, Time to put all of those things in place now before we all start to, whatever, augment our vision. If that's where this is going, what does that look like for us? No pun intended. Or maybe pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's hard to predict the, those ethical questions. When you have these advances, it opens up space. And within that space, it's like, okay, we've advanced into this new arena, but there are all of now these questions that come up. And I think that the rate at which this technology develops and the rate at which we find ways to answer these questions are not always aligned. And so I think it is really important to keep in mind that sci-fi is not just for entertainment. It's, it's often a, a predictor or it's maybe an inspiration. And we do need to think about that. But I agree it is so exciting sort of where things are moving. And I've really enjoyed this conversation just because of my own interest in neuroscience. But I think it's so widely applicable. And I love that your work um, actually also serves to tell these stories, as you said. I think that is one of the big take homes. I think this area of work that you do actually really helps to tell that story in the world in a way that actually matters to people. So thank you so much for the work that you do and also for being a guest on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure having this conversation with you. Oh, it's been such fun. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. We'll be back after this quick word from our sponsors. Zencor is an LA area biotech committed to improving patient lives by engineering and developing better biologic medicines. 
using their pioneering XMAB technologies. Zencor has created or contributed to over 20 therapeutic antibodies and cytokines in ongoing clinical trials. They are advancing these drug candidates for patients internally and with leading industry partners, and two XMAB antibodies are now FDA approved. Zencor is always looking for scientific talent and has more than 10 research scientist positions available. They offer the opportunity to work on cutting-edge biology and an environment to grow and enhance your career. Learn more and apply at xencor.com careers. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode. To learn more about Carolina Driscoll, check out the show notes. And if you like the show, then please take a moment to subscribe and share. It really does help our visibility and takes less than a minute. This podcast is a BCLA production. Thank you so much to our podcasting team, Kathy Grosh and Ananta Wadwa, my co-producers, Damon Palermo for the sound design, Daniel Grace for the fantastic theme music, and of course, the sponsors of this episode. Canon Design, Brainome, Zencore, and Bioscience LA. We also wanted to take a moment to reiterate how thankful we are for our dedicated listeners. We really hope that you have learned a lot about biotech in LA this past year. And we'll actually be taking a small break in the beginning of 2022 to create an awesome set of episodes for the new year. So stay tuned for that. Wishing you a lovely holiday season. Stay safe and see you in 2022.